hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is so good to see you again this morning. Thank you for inviting me into your home. I feel comfortable now. <laughs> Thank you for letting me be a part of your family on Sunday mornings. Can I get some more coffee, please? If you're visiting us for the very first time here at Grace, I want to welcome you to My name is Nathan. I hope you sit back and rela relax and are comfortable this morning, but I already know you are because you're in your own living room. No doubt somebody invited you from Grace via Facebook or some other electronic way, or you drove down Van Buren Boulevard and saw the giant banner on our facility for the live stream. In any case, I'm glad that you are here. Today's a great day to be here because we're going to do everything that we always do as a church. When it, we're having exciting, wonderful, joyful times, days of celebration, we do the same thing. We study God's Word. It, it reminds us who we are and reminds us who God is. God is great, wonderful, powerful, and it grounds us to remind, remind ourselves who we are. But even in times of difficulty or desperation or fr frustration or stress or worry, we go to God's Word. It grounds us. It reminds us who God is and how powerful He is and who we are because of His kids. And so I'm glad that you are here this morning and we are launching this brand new series that we are simply calling Church. And we're learning from this New Testament book that is called First Timothy. And I am super excited about this. And you're thinking, man, that sounds really boring. <laughs> Why are you excited? It'd be exciting if it was a sermon series about sex. It'd be a, uh, an exciting sermon series if it was about politics. Well, you can keep holding your breath on that one. I am going to be preaching a uh, sermon series regarding the election once the general election does get closer in the fall. And so that's not yet, though. And so you're probably thinking, Pastor, if you flew around the building, that would be exciting. But learning from the book of 1 Timothy, that does not sound very exciting. Well, let me tell you why this is such a great personal spiritual achievement for me. It was almost six years ago now that our elder board here at Grace came and they asked me if I would consider being the next pastor at Grace Community Church after our founding pastor, Brian Smith, retired uh, from pastoring the church. And I asked them the same question that you asked. Are you sure? <laughs> I know that's what you were thinking. <laughs> that's what you were thinking, and that's what I was thinking too. It's all okay. And so after a lot of consideration, a lot of prayer, I agreed to allow them to put me on the ballot. But as all that conversation was happening, our, our pastor, Pastor Brian Smith, asked me, so what's your first sermon series going to be on? What are you going to preach on first? And so I said, you know, I think I want to preach on 1 Timothy. And he said, ah, that's good. So then a year later, finally my name was on the ballot, and you did approve me as your pastor. And I did not preach on 1 Timothy. And I don't know if Pastor Brian ever noticed or not. He probably did. <laughs> but the reason, that I, the reason that I wanted to preach on 1 Timothy was because it's written to a, a young pastor, and I could identify with it. Every single time our men's small group would get to that part in the Bible, we read uh, the New Testament throughout, through the entire year. And whenever we'd get to that part, that's all they'd hear from me, is all the things that I'm learning from 1 Timothy. And so you might be wondering, well, how come you didn't uh, preach on it? And the reason is, is because it's hard. Uh, it, it is a hard book. Um, it, it's, 
it makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, it, it's politically incorrect. It, it rubs you the wrong way. And I didn't know this at the time, but pastors do not preach verse by verse through the book of 1 Timothy. <laughs> they, it, you can go on the internet and you could find sermon series on 1 Timothy and there just aren't many to find. And the reason is, is because this book, it, it cuts it, it, it's, 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 it, it, it hurts, it is a, a two-edged sword, and it cuts deep. And, and so as I was preparing to, to preach uh, 1 Timothy, I realized that I was going to be an idiot. <laughs> I was going to be an idiot if I was going to preach this, this series. And so uh, I, I decided not to. And so for the last five years, God has been humbling me as your pastor, and all during that time, First Timothy's been like a side gig for me. I've been studying it, I've been reading it, I've been applying what I've been learning from it. I certainly don't have it all nailed down at all, and who knows, maybe I'm still an idiot for preaching it now. But, but with God's grace, I think I'm to the point where I'm able to do this book justice, and ultimately God and you are going to be the ones that are going to judge that or not. Um, but as we launch into this book of 1 Timothy, we first need to know just a little bit about, the, the, about this book and where it came from. So I'm going to ask everyone in the room, before we go on, I want you to just tell everybody else in the room who you think wrote the book of 1 Timothy. Who wrote the book of 1 Timothy? Has everyone said? Has everyone said what they, they think it is? Okay, so it's kind of a trick question because Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Not Timothy, but Paul. Paul writes this letter to a man named Timothy. Typically, Paul would write a letter to an entire church, like the Corinthian church, and so he writes Corinthians. But this is an individual letter to a man named Timothy. And so let's read what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this verse has our two main characters, and the first one is Paul. Now, you might know him better as Saul. If you were a part of our Easter service, I told you a story about Saul. Saul was a Jew, and he was so pro-God, at least the God that he knew. He considered the Christians an a evil cult and was an offense to God. And so, and so, Paul, and so Saul was so pro-God, he was killing the Christians, he would go out and he'd find rocks big enough where he could throw them at them and it would kill them called stoning. And so Saul was going around stoning Christians, killing Christians, imprisoning Christians. And then he got some letters of approval to go to another city, jump on the 91 and go to Orange County and to kill some Christians over there too. And on his way to Orange County to kill more Christians, that is where Saul met Jesus Christ. And that is where he changed his mind about who Jesus was. That's where he was born again. That's where he changed his mind about Jesus being the Messiah, being God in the flesh, the one that the Jews had been looking for for a long, long time. And I just want to pause here just for a minute 
and say it's never too late to change your mind about who Jesus is. Some people think that Christianity is, the, is a kid's thing, is a child's thing. Paul was saved when he was an adult. Many of the people watching this right now were saved as an adult. When they were younger and growing up, they were sure they knew, knew God. They were sure that they uh, had everything all lined up for their future. But then they heard the gospel of Jesus and they changed their mind about who God is. It's never too late. It's never too late. If you're watching this right now and you're kind of skeptical about the whole thing, I just want you to remember, if there's anything else, if there's nothing else you remember, I just want you to remember it is never too late to change your mind about who Jesus is. My grandfather, very analytical man, uh, very smart man. He was an engineer uh, for a, a uh, aerospace company that if he told you what he did, he would have to kill you, literally. <laughs> and and it, it took him 70 years. And when he was 70 years old, he put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. It is never too late. I want you to know that. It was never too late for Paul, for Saul. Once he got saved, God changed his name to Paul. And so that's why it's kind of hard to remember which one's Saul and which one's Paul because it's the exact same guy. And so we have Paul. But our second character of this story is Timothy. And it says in the verse there, Timothy, my true child in the faith, was Timothy Paul's son? The answer is no. Timothy had his own biological dad. His biological dad was not a Jew. His biological, biological dad was a Gentile. His mom was a Jew. And his dad is nowhere in, in the picture. We don't know where he is. We don't know why he's not there. But he's nowhere in the picture. It is his mom and his grandma that are the biggest influences for him. And they're the ones that gave him the name Timothy, which means the one who honors God. And so Timothy, with his mom and grandma, lived in this city, lived in Lystra. That's where the red and white identifier there is on the map. And this is a map of the known world of the time. Today, it would be considered Turkey, but this is the known world at the time, and it was called Galatia at the time. And you can see all those lines that are running through that map. All those lines are Paul's missions trips. As he goes out and he starts to tell the world about who Jesus is being the Messiah, he took three main mission trips, and so those are the, the routes that he took. And so you'll notice that the, the route that Paul took first went right through Lystra. And I want to show you what was happening at the time and why Paul ended up in Lystra. Look at Acts chapter 14, verses 5 to 7. It says, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone Paul, don't you find that interesting? That it was, it was Paul, or Saul, who was killing Christians by throwing rocks at them. Now, it's his old buddies who are now trying to kill him by throwing rocks at him. And so it says, though, in Acts 14, that he became aware of it, and he fled to these other cities of Lyconia, of Lystra and Derbe, and there they continued to preach the gospel, and that's exactly what they did. And they preached the gospel, and so when they got to Lystra, remember that's where Timothy and, and his mom and his grandma live, he heard the gospel. 
and he put his faith and trust in Jesus. And so that's why Paul calls him his son. It's not his biological son, it's his spiritual son, because Paul shared the gospel with Timothy, and Timothy was saved there. And, and Timothy didn't just get saved and, and move on. He became a friend of Paul. Uh, Timothy became almost like an apostle of Paul, a follower of Paul. He became a, a co-worker. They, they worked in ministry together, and Paul started to show him kind of all the inner workings of ministry. And so Paul took Timothy with him as he went and visited other churches. And they ended up in this city. And you probably can't tell the, the name of this city because it's so small on the screen, but this city is Ephesus. And when they ended up in Ephesus, Paul said, hey, why don't you stay here, and I want you to be the pastor of the Ephesian church. And so this is what launches the pastoral epistles. That's what we're reading. We're reading the section of the Bible called the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Paul writes these letters to pastors of these churches. And the focus of the pastoral epistles is, maybe like you would expect, is the church. Look at the focus, 1 Timothy 3.15, where it says, I write so that you, Timothy, will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul says there are certain identifiers, there are certain features that, that make a church a church. It's not just by slapping a cross on the outside of the building. It's not just by putting a steeple on the front of the building. It's not by putting a pulpit up front in a room. It's not those things that make a church. There are certain identifiers, certain factors to notice that would say that this is a biblical Jesus-focused church. And so if you're relatively new to Grace Community Church and you're still trying to figure out if this is the right church for you or not, uh, I'm glad that you're here um, because you're going to learn what you should be looking for in a church. And you do need to decide. There will come a point in time where you need to decide if this is the right church for you or, or not. And you do need to know that not all churches are for all people. There are lots of great churches in Riverside, and so you get to decide which church is yours. But just as not all churches are for all people, you also need to know that not all churches are churches. There are certain identifying factors that Paul is going to lay out in this book that this is a biblical church. This is a Jesus-focused church. And I hope you'd stick around long enough to go through this series with us. At least as you're looking for a church, you would know what to look for. Now, you already know that church isn't about a building. That's, you already knew that before you even started. That church isn't about a building. But it is about building the church the right way. Church isn't about a building but it's about building the church the right way. And almost ironically, the pastoral epistles that we are reading here have resulted in three different forms of church organization. The pastoral epistles have resulted in three different forms of church leadership. And I want to show those to you. These are the three different forms of the of organizational structure that have come from the pastoral epistles. The first one is the episcopal. 
style of church leadership. The second is the congregational organization of a church. And thirdly, the representative organization of a church. And the Episcopal style is where one man or several men are in charge at the top. And so the Catholics would call him the Pope. Uh, Other churches would call them the Archbishop. And it is one man that makes all of the decisions, and then it flows out to all of the churches and the hundreds of thousands of people that are part of the churches that are underneath him. He makes the decision, this is what we believe, or this is what we're going to do, or this is how we're going to do it, and the churches are just told how to do it. The second is the congregational form of organizational government of a church. And the congregational is completely the opposite of Episcopal. If the Episcopal is one man making all of the decisions or one group of people making all of the decisions for all the other churches, the congregational is just opposite of that, where the entire church votes on everything. They vote on the mortgage payment. They vote on accepting new members. They vote on the type of paper that's going to go in the office printers. They vote on everything. You have the Episcopal. You have the Congregational, which are almost opposite of each other. And then you have the representative style of church organization. And this is where the members of the church select certain people from among themselves to become the officers, to become the leaders. And so they select the deacons and the deaconesses and the elders. And then that leadership, though, is in the hands of those selected representatives. And Grace Community Church would be a church just like that. And Paul's ultimate conclusion in all of this is, as much as the form of government is important, the caliber of the people holding to positions is the most important. As important as as the organizational structure is, the caliber of the people holding the offices is by far the most important thing. That's what Paul says in the pastoral epistles. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy It's a letter, it's not a text message, he wasn't limited in his amount of space that he had. If if he could have written an email, Paul probably would have written an email. And when Timothy received this letter, he didn't just read the first two lines like we've done and just finish and move on. He would have read the entire thing and poured over it. And since we can't read the entire thing in this venue right here, I would encourage you to read the entire thing. You're like, I can't read an entire book of the Bible, look it's going to take you maybe 15 minutes, (laughs) okay? This isn't like deep, hard reading, okay? Maybe 15 minutes right after we're done today. You could do it with your family. Or maybe tomorrow morning when you normally read the Bible, read the entire book so you get an idea of the type of things that the Apostle Paul addresses. But you will notice some pretty interesting topics. Slavery is in here. The role of women in the church is in here these elders who rule over the church, and also the topic that we're talking about today. Who is it that should speak in a church? Who is it that that should get up and speak, and, and who shouldn't? And so let's draw our attention back to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And so let's read the passage that we're going to study now. It says, 
As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which, with which I have been entrusted. And so let's go all the way back to 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, where Paul started it all, and he says, Hey, I, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain at Ephesus as the pastor so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So Paul says, hey, Tim, would you hang out at Ephesus and be the pastor and deal with all the problems that are going on here? And so here, here's what was going on in Ephesus. In the first century, the churches that were operating were operating very similar to the way a synagogue would operate. After all, most of the new Christians were Jews, and that was their only frame of reference of a meeting of worshiping God was the synagogue. And so it only makes sense that their meetings as a new church would be exactly like the synagogue. And the way the synagogue worked, everybody had different places to sit, depending on your wealth, depending on your job, your occupation, depending on your... Uh, community status. You would sit in certain parts of the room. Men and women would sit differently. And after a portion of the Old Testament was read in a synagogue, then the, the pastor of the synagogue or the president of the synagogue, however you want to imagine it, he would get up and he would then open up the floor and allow anybody to speak who wanted to speak. Well, what do you think? Okay, sounds good. What do you think? Okay, what do you think? Okay, what do you think? Okay. And so that's exactly the way it was in these churches. And that's how Jesus was able to spread his news when he was uh, alive on earth. And that's how the Apostle Paul was able to, to get into cities and to teach people the gospel of Jesus. Every time he would go into a new town, he would go into a synagogue and he'd wait for that time in the worship service when they would say, okay, what do you have to say and what do you have to say? Well, Paul would stand up and he would advocate for Jesus being the Messiah, the one that they had, had all been waiting for. But you can imagine that that's a dangerous thing. <laughs> when you give someone a microphone, you're going to get a lot of weird stuff. And that's exactly what was happening in this church in Ephesus. And Paul writes to say, stop it. 
That's why he wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was addressing all of the problems that were happening in the church from all the people that were getting up in that portion of the, of the synagogue, uh, or in the, 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 that, that portion of the new Christian church service, which is exactly like the synagogue church service. And he's saying, you cannot have everybody speak. And Paul addresses some certain people. He says, certain men, okay? certain men. He, he's addressing the Judaizers. That's who this is, the, the Judaizers. And what were the Judaizers teaching? 1 Timothy, Timothy 1 verse 3 says, they are teaching strange doctrines. That's exactly what they were doing. It was strange stuff. This was like their main one. Remember, these are Jews who got saved and are now Christians. And so now they're teaching this Judaizer kind of form of gospel. And this is what they'd say when a new Gentile would walk in the door, sit down, and when it came to that part of the worship service where people would get up and they could speak, well, the Judaizers, they'd get up and they'd say, hey, all you Gentiles, you need to become a Jew in order to be born again. Meaning... You need to get circumcised in order to be born again. And you can imagine that this wasn't going over well at all. And in addition to that, it wasn't just that one strange doctrine. There were some others like uh, limitations on food that people could eat. And you shouldn't get married. You should become kind of like a, uh, a monk or a priest where you don't get married. And so these Judaizers were doing in this church what some pastors do in some churches even still today, and that is to burden the Christians in their church with extra rules, extra um, requirements that make them a good Christian that are nowhere in Scripture. They were just adding them on. Maybe you've been a part of a church like that in the past. Um, maybe, maybe you've been hurt by a church like that in the past. Maybe you grew up in a church where they said, oh, you're not a Christian if you wear that. Well, that's nowhere in Scripture. Maybe you're healing from a, a church that said, oh, only good Christians give this dollar amount. Or you're not a good Christian if you go to the movies. You see, those people, those Judaizers in the Ephesian church were doing the exact same thing that some pastors do in churches today. And not only were they doing that, it also says in verse 4 that they were, uh, they were paying attention to these myths. These were these legends that the Jews had added to the Old Testament. And the Jews still follow these myths still today in the, in the Jewish Talmud. And then they were following these endless genealogies. They were taking the Old Testament genealogies. And then they were like adding more people to the lists. And then they were adding like stories to those extra names to that extra list from the Old Testament. And that's what the apocryphal book of Jubilee is an example of all of this endless genealogy stuff. And Paul in verse 6 ultimately calls all of this fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion. Well, what is fruitless discussion? What is that? Well, are you familiar with a, a fruitless tree? Uh, like a fruitless olive tree? tree. Here at Grace, we have two fruitless olive trees, and they're the trees in our courtyard. And so if you know our courtyard and those trees and the circles, those are fruitless olive trees. They have 
you know, they have branches and they have leaves, but they just don't blossom and, and fruit doesn't grow on them. There's no olives on the fruitless olive tree. And so they're nice to look at, but if you're looking for the, uh, for the fruitless olive for any sort of nourishment, you're going to starve. And that's the point. That's the point of the teaching of these Judaizers, is that it's, they might be nice to listen to, they might sound very spiritual, but if you're looking to nourish your soul, you're going to starve to death because they don't have anything to nourish your soul. And ultimately, Paul in verse 10 calls it contrary to sound teaching. All of this stuff that was happening in the church was contrary to sound or, or healthy teaching. False teaching is not healthy teaching. And that is what is happening in this church. And that is sometimes, unfortunately, what happens in Christian churches today where there's not sound teaching, when it's not healthy teaching, because it is only healthy teaching that can nourish the soul. It's only healthy teaching that can, that can satisfy. It is only healthy teaching that can, uh, that can decompress and de-stress and de-worry. It's only healthy teaching that can cut to the heart and get to the point. It's only sound teaching that can do any of those things. And that is one of the purposes of the church. That is one of the purposes of the church that you should look for, that they are using God's word to nourish your soul. You, you kind of have to, it's kind of hard to, to notice. Is it the Bible that's nourishing my soul, or is it the eloquence of the person who's speaking it that's nourishing my soul? Because it's, if it's only the, the, the eloquence of the person that's speaking, if it's only the eloquence of the pastor then you have some trouble because what happens when that pastor gets sick? What happens when that pastor goes on vacation? What happens when that pastor leaves the church? Now there's no more nourishing the soul. And so that's why it is so necessary that a church uses the Bible to nourish a soul, uses the, the Bible to cut to the heart, uses the Bible to sti still a, an upset spirit, an upset heart to... to bring joy and to bring excitement to a celebratory moment. It is God's word that does those things. And so the ultimate question in all of this is, did it work? Did Paul's note to Timothy, did it work? Did it solve this problem of these people stepping up in the church and these Judaizers making unbiblical, unsound, unhealthy statements in the church. It was confusing the church. Did this letter work? Well, decades later, John writes Jesus' perspective of this church. And who knows, Timothy may have still been a part of this Ephesian church at this point in time or not. I don't know. But this is Jesus' statements. Jesus's letters that is penned by Paul to this church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, this is what Jesus says about this church. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Do you see what Jesus says about them? He says that you put these people to the test. These people would stand up and they would make these declarations, but you stop just listening to them. You stop listening to them assuming that it was sound. 
you put them to the test. What was the test that they put them to? Well, they compared it to Scripture. Is this what Scripture says? They stopped listening to them just because they had money. See, that's what was happening is the, the people up front had all the most money. They had the notoriety. They had the, the, uh, the cultural notoriety. And so those people would stand up and everybody would pay to, oh, listen to them because they have money. Listen to them because they're influential. Listen to them because they're a, a politician. And all of a sudden, they started putting them to the test. And it wasn't about how handsome they were. It wasn't about how much money they had anymore. It's how did it match up with God's word. And so Jesus' compliment to this church is they were faithful to God's word. That was the compliment. And I, I want grace to be a church like that. I, I want grace to be complimented like that. I want to be known for a church that is faithful to God's word. I don't want to be known for the size of our church. The, the longer I've been a pastor, the more I have realized that pastors really like <laughs> to own like the size. That, that, that they either pay attention to the, the largeness or the smallness, and they, they try, to, try to, you know, like lift, you know, buff, you know, lift up their numbers so that they can look like a larger church. Or there are some pastors, and I didn't know this at all, but there are some pastors who, who are so anti-megachurch that they want to be known for how small they are, and so they publicize being a small, small church. I don't want to be known for being a small church or a large church. I don't want to be known for being a church with a wonderful, wonderful facility. We do. We have a wonderful facility. I wish, I wish you guys could be here. We have a wonderful facility, and we need to maintain it so it brings God glory to anybody who comes to this place. But I don't, I don't want to be known for our facility. I don't want to be known for our numbers. I don't want to be known for the type of helicopter that the, that the pastor flies around in. <laughs> Wait a minute, maybe I do. <laughs> no! The only compliment we want from God is the way that we handle this book, the, 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 the faithfulness that we have to this book. That is where we want to get our compliments from. And so whatever happened to, to Timothy, whatever happened to him being the pastor of this church, here's about all we know. Look at Hebrews 13. It says, take notice of our brother Timothy, who has been released. For some reason, Timothy had been imprisoned somewhere, and he eventually got released, and that's all we know. That's it. What about the Apostle Paul? Well, the Apostle Paul is a little bit different. Uh, he... He ended up dying for his faith. He ended up dying for preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. If you're a little skeptical still about all these things about Jesus, that is a, that is a hard thing for a skeptic to overcome. Why would all of Jesus' closest followers die for proclaiming the things that Jesus claimed to be? See, if Jesus was just a weirdo, if he was just some guy that had kind of a God complex, if he was just a magician and kind of convinced other people, his closest followers, his closest confidants, his best friends would have known all about it. And as soon as Jesus left the scene, they, they would have been done with him too. And as soon as there would have been any pressure politically or any pressure religiously or any pressure physically on their body, they would have abandoned all the statements of Jesus. But every single one of them died for saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
You see, when, when Saul believed, when he changed his mind as an adult, he really did. He knew that Jesus was the Savior. And so, like I say, it, it's never too late for you to change your mind either. Hey, you might be in a position like that where you're, you're an adult and you've been considering these things. It's never too light, late to change your mind. Now, what was it that Paul said to Timothy when, when Paul got to Lystra and Timothy heard what Paul said and he got saved? What was it that Paul was saying? What did Timothy hear? Well, this is what Timothy heard. He heard that Jesus was God in the flesh and he died on the cross for the sins of the world so that they could have eternity in heaven with God. That is what they, that, he, that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. That's who Jesus is. That's what the Bible says Jesus is, that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. You know, you have, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, Jesus Christ, and you have God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And so that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God come to earth as a person on Christmas Day. He lives a perfect life, never sins one time. He does something that you and I never could do. He was perfect. He never did anything wrong. Now, I know you're a pretty good person. I know that you, you've, you've done a lot of great things for a lot of people, but you haven't, you haven't been perfect, right? I'm not perfect. You're not. Nobody's perfect except for one. Jesus was the game changer. And so when he is dying on the cross on Good Friday, he's not dying for his own sin. He is the perfect, spotless lamb. The sacrifice for the sins of the world, as his blood is pouring out on that Good Friday, he's not paying for his own sin. He's paying for mine. He's paying for yours. The Bible says he's paying for the sins of the world. Three days later, he rises from the grave, not to like finish up what happened on 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 Good Friday. It wasn't like it needed, we needed some more salvation. He rises from the grave proving that he is God and he could do everything that he promised, including take our souls to heaven when we die. And so then there is a common assumption that, well, because Jesus died on the cross, well, then everybody's going to heaven. Woohoo! That is called universalism, and that is a lie. That is not true. Everyone does not go to heaven. The Bible says that you must believe in him. You must change your mind about who Jesus is. And so that's who a Christian is. A Christian is a person who, just like you, is not perfect, has done good things, has done a lot of bad things, and they know that they're not getting to heaven on their own. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And so a Christian is a person who changes their mind about Jesus. They believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for their sin, that he rose from the grave, proving to them they believe that Jesus is the Savior. And so then the promise is that the third person of the Trinity comes, that's the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of a Christian as a promise take their soul to heaven when they die. And so today could be a day where you put your faith and trust in Jesus, where you believe today for the very first time. It's never too late. It's never too late. And here's what you could do in the privacy of your own mind, in the privacy of your own heart. You can continue to listen. You can continue to stare at the TV, whatever you're doing right now. But do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he came to earth and lived a perfect life? Do you believe that when he went to the cross, he wasn't dying for his sin? 
but he was dying for yours. And do you believe, I mean believe like, like you would stake your life on it, that Jesus rose from the grave because he is actually God? Well, talk to God about those things. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to talk to me. You talk to God about those things. That thing is called prayer. I'm going to close this in prayer today. Why don't we all bow our heads? Well, dear God, we thank you for the promises that you make in your Bible. We thank you for the things that we read in it. And we thank you that you saved Paul so that he could communicate to us the truths of your salvation. I thank you that Timothy was saved too. I thank you for every person that has put their faith and trust in you. Every single one of those is a miracle. And I pray for those who are still deciding that that they would change their mind too. And so God, in these times where it's so uncertain, in these times where, where we do not know what the next day brings, where the coronavirus has completely turned our world upside down, we come and we study the Bible because that's what grounds us. We remember that you are in control. Remember that you are the one who oversees all of these things and our lives are in your hands. And we thank you for that. And so God, we lift up the people who are in the hospital today. We pray for their comfort. God, we pray for those people who are working at the hospitals, the doctors and the nurses, all the support staff. We pray that you would protect their families too in a time like this from bringing the virus home. We pray for the scientists worldwide who are working on on ways to address this medically but they need your supernatural wisdom your your chemical biological insight into these things god we lift up our our mayor our governor our president and the decisions that they make for the population of the united states we pray for their wisdom god we lift all these things up to you and we're happy that we sit as children of yours having the the promises that we've read today. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.